if you turn on the news or go onto Twitter, everyone's talking about the hot debate that has surfaced in Congress around funding for Medicaid. But just to give you the basics, Medicaid is a federal program that provides health coverage to over 37 million children, children from low-income families, mostly children of color, and students with disabilities. Schools across the country use these funds for services that prioritize student health and well-being. On today's show, we explore how policies like Medicaid represent an urgent push for healthy schools across the country. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase from Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Rochelle Davis is a larger-than-life figure in the Healthy Schools space as the founder of the Healthy Schools Campaign. The Healthy Schools Campaign has advocated for expansion of Medicaid so more uninsured kids have health services. They've advocated for green spaces for kids to play, cleaner buildings for students, and pushing for more physical activity so kids are healthy and ready to learn. Her work has never stopped, though, even when taking her own kids to school. Well, Joe, thanks for including me. What is the Healthy Schools Campaign, Rochelle? Healthy Schools Campaign is a nonprofit organization that is based on the very simple and common sense notion that healthy students are better learners and that health and wellness should be incorporated into every aspect of the school experience. And it's a very simple idea, but we live in a very complex society. And so really making that happen requires a lot of change to policy and practice, not only in the education space, but in the healthcare space and in other sectors. But we really see there is an enormous power to improving student health and school health to really make sure that students can be healthy in school and ready to learn. And from what I understand, Rochelle, you played a pretty integral role in actually starting the organization? Yes, I did. Tell us more about that. Why did you start an organization? So everyone asks me that question, and I feel like people expect me to have some dramatic story about my how my kids were sprayed with pesticides, and then I went on a crusade. But for me, founding and leading Healthy Schools Campaign was not really the reaction to a single experience, but rather an extension of my career that had focused on social justice, health, and environmental issues. Now, of course, I do have a pesticide story. My son says it was one of the most embarrassing moments of his life. I was dropping him off for soccer practice in high school, and there were kids running around playing football and soccer and other sports. And 
someone came out and started spraying pesticides on the field while these kids were playing. And I calmly got out of my car and asked him, what are you doing? And he told me that it had rained the day before, so he was trying to get it done today. I had asked him to stop and he didn't. And eventually the athletic director came over and agreed with me and stopped the spraying. Now, My son would say that I ran out of the car like a maniac, but I remember being very (laughs) calm and rational. Okay, maybe I did make a stink, but at least I did get him to stop. And, you know, sometimes there's a big picture policy handle to making change. And other times it's really that simple, bringing the health impact of a decision to the attention of someone on the ground at a school. And at Healthy Schools Campaign, we do work on that policy and system level. But in addition, we try to provide information so that more people can be that person in their school, the one who says, wait a minute, we need to do this differently because kids' health is at stake. When a random Joe, me, emailed Alex Mays, she was the senior national program director with the Healthy Schools Campaign. And as you'll hear more, a research opportunity in pediatric oncology was a spark for her to become one of the few people in the country who can quickly give examples of communities that are bridging health and education. I joked earlier that I just picked up the phone or emailed you and you responded and said you, you, you'd want to write a chapter. I know. I loved which I was, it. <laughs> which I was totally, totally surprised me because most people, not everybody responded to my emails. Yeah. Phone calls. Alex, you and Rochelle are, have done some amazing work on this chapter, but I think a question I've asked everybody you know, for the podcast is really, how did your upbringing shape your interests in the intersection of health and education? So growing up, I was always interested in the health sciences and biology and chemistry. In college, I wanted to um, pursue medicine, so did pre-med, and had always always been interested in kids' health specifically. And so that's really what began to kind of focus me on health and wellness and After college, uh, I did research for a number of years in uh, pediatric oncology, doing clinical research, but was really, the research was focused on looking at why there are significant racial disparities and survival outcomes for children with leukemia. And Hmm. it really exposed me to the whole world of healthcare and public health specifically and Mm. made me take a step back from thinking about pursuing medicine and kind of opened my eyes to this idea that there's so much more in the ecosystem surrounding kids that can support their success and, and not only their health, but how then intertwined health is with their their education and with their future success as as adults. And so it really just led me led me down this rabbit hole and ended up pursuing going to graduate school for public health where mm. I had the opportunity to take some classes that exposed me to the intersection of health and education and school health and it was it was just this aha moment for me that it was kind of this is this is what I've been looking for this it really resonated with me that 
where our you know kids spend so much of their time in the school building adults mm-hmm. do too and we are not thinking about how to harness the role that schools can be playing in supporting health and wellness and so that's really what I became very interested in and passionate about this intersection between health and education through having the chance to take some of those classes and um, I haven't looked back since <laughs> so you mentioned that you know, students spend hours and hours in school settings, which impacts their public health. Where did you spend most of your time? Which school? Where, where'd you grow up? Yeah. So I um, I grew up in Northern California, north of San Francisco, so in the Bay Area, and had, yeah, went to, to public school up through middle school and was always, had the opportunity to to go to schools that had, had school nurses, um, mm. had healthy school facilities. You know, they were they were good, kind of by by all means, uh, supportive of of student health and wellness. I personally have always loved playing sports, and so that was a huge part of my upbringing too. And having the chance to be physically active, I'm I'm six foot one. We haven't met in person, but I, I basketball and volleyball were um, big sports for me growing up, and I actually played basketball in college. So that really did also, I would say, shape a lot of my focus on on health and wellness for kids, just having had the opportunities myself to be physically active and understand the importance of good nutrition to being able to be successful both in in the classroom and in sports. And so wanting to try to create those opportunities for other kids as well. I moved around a little bit after that. Mm -hmm. I was on the East Coast for graduate school. I was in Mm -hmm. Chicago for a stretch. And then now I'm actually back in the Bay Area in Oakland. And Mm -hmm. my kids are, I have a a kindergartner and an Oakland Unified. So it's it's really coming full circle too. And just having the chance to now see how much the health and wellness of the the school building and what he has access to as a kindergartner is impacting and supporting his ability to be successful. So before we get to the next question, I have to ask you, where did you play college basketball? Because I didn't I didn't know this about you, Alex. There's a lot I'm finding out right now. Yeah, I know that digging in deep. Um, I, I I went to a small liberal arts school called Pomona College. So oh, it was Pomona, we were yeah. Division Three, but we were the Mighty Sage Hens. So yeah, played played basketball for four years there. The Mighty Sage Hens. <laughs> Not your typical I, typical school mascot, right? I feel like there's there's some funny ones out there, but Sage Hens is definitely that, one of them. <laughs> that is the first. Okay. Yep. <laughs> well, that's why it's so great to get to know folks before we kind of dig in and to see how, how your interests have kind of morphed or even come back together with, you said, your, your kindergartner. Defining school health is a much bigger task than you think. In order to understand the complicated anatomy of a policy like this, it's important to have a comprehensive vision of what school health even means. So Alex, when we think about why is health so vital to student learning? I mean, at the most basic level, if kids aren't healthy, they can't learn. If, if you have a child that whether 
they're impacted by asthma or mental health issues or diabetes or um, any number of, of health issues, it directly impacts their ability to learn. We know that asthma is the leading cause of absenteeism. So mm -hmm. if you have a child that's suffering from chronic asthma and they're missing so much school that they're falling behind, that is having a direct impact on their ability to learn. There's a lot of research also supporting that chronic health issues for kids impacts their ability to focus in the classroom, even when they are um, physically in their seat, you know, their ability to be fully mentally present and, and focused on retaining the information can be limited by those health issues. And then it's also just knowing that supporting health and wellness in, in schools can really also support the long-term health and wellness of students and later on in life too. So it's giving them those, those skills and setting them on a trajectory to be successful, but it really is that that direct pathway between mm -hmm. the way the role that the health and wellness issues play in impacting attendance, focus, and having a direct impact on a lot of the academic outcomes that we know schools care so much about. When we talk about health, what do we mean? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I feel like even in the field of, of school health, if you ask any one person, you'll get everybody will give you a different answer. And I think for me, it's ensuring that all the pieces are in place that can really support a child's ability to learn. So I it's having access to health services in school. When we think about a healthy school environment, I should say it's it's having access to health services in schools, having healthy school meals, opportunities for physical activity, environmental health. So thinking about the school facilities, looking at you know access to mental health supports, health education. Uh, there's a great model from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention called the Whole School, Whole Community, Whole Child model, which really presents a comprehensive overview of what a healthy school environment can be. And it includes all those components um, in addition to really thinking about the supports within a community that can support that healthy school environment. Um, and I would say when we think about the individual and think about what health is for an individual student or, or staff member, mm -hmm. it is, you know, it's certainly we're thinking about the kids that are coming to school with chronic illnesses. We know that one in four kids comes to school with a chronic illness. So we certainly think of, you know, health as, as that as well. But it's also kids that are coming to school that have been impacted by trauma or or more at risk for health issues if they're living in housing that might not be supportive of their health and wellness. So we also really think about it as, you know, not only the kids that are impacted by health and wellness issues, but the ones that might be more at risk for those issues or, you know, wanting to support even kids who are healthy and make sure that they can continue being healthy. For Rochelle Davis, her calling as a public health expert has deep ties to her identity, culture, and religious beliefs. I mean, I grew up in Chicago and went to, you know, the same public school from kindergarten through eighth grade. And then my parents moved and I went to a high school in a suburb of Chicago. And I really just see this more as an extension of the, you know, kind of my decision 
to have my professional life be about creating social change and justice and addressing equity. And I certainly understood that I had grown up with a lot of benefits and a lot of access to support and recognized that many other people didn't. And, you know, in some ways, I just feel like I really believe in the American dream that every person should have the opportunity to, you know, for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if you don't have an education and you don't have health, it's really hard to be able to support yourself, support your family, contribute to society. And I certainly recognized the racial disparities around both health and education. I don't think I would have talked about it that way as a child, but I was certainly aware of that. And for me, the other major factor that, you know, has directed my life's work is I am Jewish and I was raised to believe in tikkun olam or the commandment to help repair the world. And I did not take all the commandments seriously, but that one really was something that I learned about that was part of my family and was something I took very seriously. Tikkun olam. Could you spell it for us? Mm. That's that's not a trick question. No, it's T-I-K-K-U-M. O-L-A-M. So it's obviously a Jewish word, and it gets translated Mm -hmm. to me to repair the world. So you gave a great example of, as a parent, putting on your parent hat, you were a policymaker in that moment. What's the role of policy in repairing and, and rebuilding the world from your perspective? Well, I mean, it's very, very important because, you know, at a particular local level where you are you're a parent or you're a child or a teacher and you're experiencing, you know, both opportunities and the lack of opportunities, those opportunities or lack their opportunities are not accidents or fate. They are the result of very clear and specific policies that we have made in our country and in our society over the years. And obviously, one of the fundamental issues is, you know, why do some people have access to better jobs and better housing and better food and better education? The inequities that exist in our society were not created by accident, but by clear Mm -hmm. policies. And at an individual level, yes, the athletic director got the person to stop spraying pesticides, but you really need to have a fundamental shift in centering children and children's well-being and thinking about the implications of the current policy environment from an equity perspective. Don't hold it against me, but I'm a diehard Laker fan. So when LeBron James made a huge investment in Akron Public Schools to start the I Promise Schools, I was really intrigued to see my love for basketball and education converging. Coming up in a bit, we'll detail the other exciting things off the court in Akron, Ohio, that you probably never heard about. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote, and I made this podcast to have a conversation with you. 
precisely you. And so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this podcast. Please email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's podcast comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please stop and do that now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So what is a healthy school? Well, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to read chapter seven of our children can't wait. I'm, I'm kidding, kind of. But as a starting point, a healthy school prioritizes student social, emotional, physical, spiritual, and psychological well-being. It also includes, one, healthy spaces to learn and play. Two, acknowledging that health is an integral part of excellence in education. Three, knowledgeable teachers, administrators, and staff who are messengers and experts in health. Four, access to physical and behavioral health services. Five, this is really important, involved parents and community members. When you think about a policy like Medicaid, which we've talked about, which the book chapter, you get into Medicaid as, as a driver for bridging health and education. That's a powerful driver. What is the significance of Medicaid? How can it be better utilized, Rochelle, to support healthy schools and healthy families? Yeah, so I think to kind of start with big picture, answer to your question, <laughs> you know, we're in a country that does not offer universal access to health care and we are not the norm in that. And, you know, I think I've spoken to some of the reasons why that might be the case. If we are going to accept the fact that we're in society, in a society that is not going to offer as a matter of good policy and conscience, access to health care for everybody, then we have cobbled together a system that targets the elderly that targets children and targets low-income low families. And Medicaid is the program that is meant to provide that level of support for lower-income families in this country. And just having that insurance program, just having that program in place doesn't automatically transfer to care because a lot of those families are living in communities where they're not providers. They lack access to transportation to get to where the care is, and mm. they may lack the flexibility in their jobs to leverage the resources that are there because they're not easily accessible. And so schools are and have been a really important place for children to get access to care whether it's mm. early intervention, prevention, or whether it's treatment of some chronic diseases. And it is shown to be a very, very effective place to deliver care. And initially, the burden for that was placed on the education system, which was already underfunded and strapped for resources. 
and mm-hmm. having a partnership, a strong partnership between the education system and the health sector in general and Medicaid in particular is good for both parties. It's good for education. It's good to achieve our health care goals and it's good for kids and families. But there were a lot of barriers in place that made it impossible for school districts to leverage to use Medicaid funding for the services that they delivered. That was not recognized as a health setting. And Mm. in 2014, I believe, Medicaid finally said, okay, schools, you can bill for these services. But yet there were 101 other system and policy barriers in in place at the state level in terms of Mm. lining up who's delivering the service with who could get billed, and honestly, helping school districts rethink their health service delivery approach. And really, and so whether those policies were were policy barriers or practice barriers, there were an enormous number of barriers that exist. And Healthy Schools Campaign has been working since then to support states and school districts in being able to leverage this, to work with Medicaid, to make the system easier and work better. And in the last year, we have finally been successful in impressing upon our national policy leaders about the importance of school Medicaid programs to meeting the health needs of students. And when you think about examples across the country, which you and Alex talk about in your chapter that are providing a window into what is possible, what examples really excite you and do you think we should look at more? So honestly, something we talk a lot about in our chapter is cross-sector partnerships. This is really a partnership between education and and Medicaid. And at a state level, one of the most important things is that the state education agency and the state Medicaid agency find a common ground, find a common language, and support a common mission. And in states Mm. where we see that happening, it is a world of difference than states where that is not happening. And I think a lot of our state education agencies have a really hard time seeing their agency. I mean, they're an education agency. So what role should they play in advancing school health programs? But many have done a great job in uh, figuring out how to have a strong partnership and uh, making it so much easier for school districts to leverage that program. It sounds to me, though, which you've made really clear today, Rochelle, is it states have to reconsider what barriers currently exist that allow districts to utilize Medicaid dollars? Because I don't think I've thought about that in the way that, that you, you articulated, but is, is that a fair uh, statement? Absolutely. And there's honestly also a role for the governor, for the state legislature. I mean, there's things that can be done to make it easier or do nothing at all. So yes, there are also some kind of just general barriers. And right now we are facing in this country a shortage of health professionals in general and a shortage of school health professionals in particular, and even to dive down uh, a little bit more, uh, a 
shortage of culturally competent or linguistically competent healthcare professionals, school health professionals to really meet the needs of students. And a lot of work needs to be done at multiple levels of government and educational institutions, community colleges, higher ed, to really diversify the school health workforce. And, you know, one, just as an example, in order to be certified as a mental health professional, a social worker, Mm -hmm. you have to do so many hours of of Mm. like an internship, but these are like unpaid Mm -hmm. positions. Not Mm. everybody in our society can both afford to go to graduate school and have basically Mm. an unpaid job. Why can't we get them set up as internships or apprenticeship programs? I mean, there's so many other ways in which we support you know, support a developing workforce, but not quite in this space yet. So that's just an example of, you know, one policy that could really make a difference. What is Medicaid? And and you dig into this deeply in the chapter, but just for folks who are not in the public health space. Yeah, sure. So this is something that's near and dear to my heart and was a a key focus of my work at Healthy Schools Campaign. So Medicaid is the nation's public health insurance program. So it provides coverage for low-income individuals across the the country. 40% of school-aged children are covered by Medicaid. And I think that statistic always takes me aback that it is the primary form of health coverage for many students across the country. And so it's what pays, you know, when a a child or a family that's covered by Medicaid, when they go in to see their pediatrician, see their provider, that provider bills Medicaid for those services and the Medicaid bills. And historically, it's been very hard, even though schools do a lot of work around delivering health services in schools from school nurses, from school mental health providers. It's historically been really hard for schools to get reimbursed for those services. Um, So there's a lot of good work going on across states to uh, make sure that schools can be billing for Medicaid, specifically for eligible services. And why, why is it hard for schools to get reimbursed? Because schools aren't in the healthcare business, and it's, it's a big one, and it's it's complicated. We're talking about doing health insurance claiming, and and this is not. We completely get that this is not what school districts, school health providers signed up to do, but it can be an incredible source of sustainable funding. It actually currently Medicaid is the third largest funding stream for K twelve education behind wow. t- Title One funding and individuals with disabilities and. Education Act. The other reason is that historically districts have just been able to bill Medicaid for uh, services that are included in individualized education programs. So more of your your special education services like speech Mm -hmm. therapy, occupational therapy, things like that. 
but states can uh, expand that. And if they so choose, allow districts to bill for any eligible service. And that's what we're seeing. 17 states have done it. We're seeing more and more states move in that direction. And it's a huge opportunity, specifically when we think about bringing in more funding and sustainable funding for mental health services. I think that's really what has been driving a lot of momentum so that we're not forcing school districts to cover the full costs of um, providing mental health services to students. And we really have had a wrong pocket problem, I would say, where we're calling on the education sector to fully fund delivery of of these services. And so we need to figure out how we can shift some of that cost to the healthcare sector. So enabling districts to be billing for more services is a, a really important way to be doing that. I, I love the wrong pocket problem analogy, which absolutely <laughs> sticks. So you just pointed out that schools are in the healthcare business. Like you very, very clearly. Yeah, it is. I know. And it's um we hear loud and clear and and absolutely understand that again, this is not what schools signed up for, you know, not what teachers signed up for, not what school health provider school health providers at least know, you know, signed up for delivering services, but there's a lot of resistance to doing this billing piece, which you completely understand. And I think the the reality, though, is that when you have one in four kids coming to school with mm-hmm. health issues and we know teachers are spending a significant amount of time dealing with health and wellness issues. And so it, we really and a lot of the recommendations in the chapter focus on, um, you know, how can we adequately equip and support these individuals in in doing this work? And and I think that's a, a key piece is recognizing that it is the the unfortunate reality that so many kids are impacted by health and wellness issues. And that's just only been exacerbated uh, as a result of COVID. Back to Akron, Ohio. I promise you'll learn something that will inspire you to become an advocate for healthy schools yourself. Some people, when, when they hear Akron, Ohio, they think of future Hall of Famer LeBron James. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you don't think, well, I'm sure you think about LeBron, but what, what else comes to mind when you think about yeah. Akron? Yeah, Akron's doing, Ohio's got some some really wonderful work happening around school health services. Um, and so they're doing fantastic job partnering, building partnerships between school districts and healthcare providers to bring in school health services to their schools. And so that's a great example, again, of that. Um, not only should schools not be paying for this on their own, they, they shouldn't be responsible for doing it on their own. And it's just a tremendous need and opportunity to build cross-sector partnerships. And I think that's really where the healthcare sector needs to recognize what a powerful partner and ally schools can be in in supporting them and doing their jobs. And so Akron is a great example. And there, there are many others where those partnerships are in place. And as a result of those partnerships, more kids in schools and Akron public schools are, are getting access to health services as a result of those partnerships with the, the healthcare partners. If you're in the room with a group of CEOs of, you know, not, not, not only insurance providers, but hospitals, medical providers, what would you tell them, Alex, about what needs to be done differently 
not only in policy, but in terms of partnerships? Yeah, um, so many things. <laughs> it's a great question. I, I think step one would just be educating and engaging them around what it is that schools can and do do with regards to health services. I think there's, I think COVID, the pandemic helped raise awareness about how much schools do beyond academics from school meals to delivering school health services, to being community anchors that all community partners really mobilize around to be delivering services and supports to students and families. But I think there's still in the healthcare sector, a lack of understanding about what it is that schools do. And there's a need to understand these are licensed providers that are highly qualified Mm -hmm. that are in schools delivering these services to students. Mm -hmm. And also, and it's not just health services, it's that students spend so much time in the school building. And when we think about addressing, you know, the working to address social determinants of health and support access to healthy meals and housing and all other types of social supports that schools just it can be a critical partner in doing that. So I think step one would be really kind of educating the the healthcare side about what it is that schools do. And then really um, bringing them to the table with with school districts to have those conversations about what is needed, what are schools doing, and, and what holes can those healthcare partners be filling. And whether that is um, supporting delivery of services or whether that's leveraging the expertise that the healthcare sector has around training or, you know, mental health education or other resources, um, there's a lot that can kind of be leveraged in terms of the healthcare sector's expertise that school districts so desperately want, and vice versa, that I think there's a lot that the healthcare sector can gain from those partnerships and understanding the health issues that really are impacting the students in a given community. If you were in the room with President Biden (laughs) and leadership from Congress, both parties, Democrat, Republican Party, what would you tell them the role the federal government should be? Yeah, it's um, it's a great question. Certainly funding. I, I always hesitate, you know, to say more money, but it's also hard not to acknowledge that more money is needed to really support schools in doing this work and hiring the staff and investing in the workforce pipeline that's needed to support health and wellness in schools. Um, but I think it's also, it's that, Uh, They can play, the federal government can also play a really key role um, in lifting up bright spots too. And and again, it's that that education piece and helping the field understand kind of what is happening in schools and where there is a, additional work that's needed. We've seen that more and more happening out of the, the Biden administration, but I think more of that is needed. And then I think there's a a role that the federal agencies in particular can play Mm. in terms of 
looking at the best practices and looking at what is working in communities across the country and and really releasing guidance, putting out toolkits, having resources that can help states and districts build on those best practices. I think Mm. so often in school health, we see there's a lot of siloing that's happening that you have the you have, you know, these one-off amazing bright spots, but there's nobody kind of taking the 10,000 foot view and thinking about, okay, what are the the common threads? What are the policies? What are the programs that have been in place that have made that possible? And that is, is a key role that I think the federal agencies can play. And I, out of the bipartisan Safer Communities Act that was passed this spring. There's um, some work around that, particularly on the school health services front, is going to be coming more guidance around school health services and and Medicaid claiming. So I think that that will be helpful. But I think more things like that are always needed. And then I think one major policy change that we I do would just love to see the Congress support is Uh, universal free school meals for all Mm. children. And that's something that under the public health emergency was put in place at the beginning of the pandemic and students across the country had access to free school lunch and free school breakfast. And that was in place through the beginning of this school year. And for this school year, it is no longer in place. And I think it's just, we've heard you know, across the country stories of where kids aren't able to afford school meals that you know can play just such a key role in supporting hunger and addressing it. And California and Maine um, do have state policies that provide free school meals for all children, regardless of of income. And so we're starting to see um, support and momentum building behind that. But I think having that leadership from Congress would be tremendous and really supporting health and wellness of all, all students. We don't normally do this, but this episode's different and you have homework. So I'm asking that you call your local member of Congress and tell them to prioritize Medicaid funding and urge your state to increase eligibility for Medicaid funding for more families and schools. Over 37 million kids could be affected by this policy overnight, and a simple call can do a lot. Thank you. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is a creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Winhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic. <laughs>